0: Very early in my career, way back in the 90s, I received a gift of a book, South of Haunted Dreams by Eddie Harris. As a young black man venturing into a professional environment that was mostly white, I took great comfort in this remarkable story of a person with a background similar to my own who was successfully leading a life with travel and adventure. In his book, Harris recounts his experiences of making his way through the southern United States' a motorcycle while enjoying occasional stops on trout streams to do a little fly fishing. Though concerned that he might be subjected to the mistreatment of racism, Harris said his ability to navigate through the places that are unfamiliar and maybe even a little bit frightening hinges upon his willingness to be vulnerable and receptive to the kindness of complete strangers. As a writer myself, I asked him, is that also a way to be an effective storyteller?
1: I don't know. I never actually thought of it that way, that it was something that I do as a literary device. I'm just traveling. I'm a traveler. I've always been a traveler since I was 16 years old. And when you travel in the ways that I travel, which is not organized, I mean, not only not in an organized tour group, but not organized. I have no plan when I go someplace. And whatever happens, happens. And when I meet people and people invite me in for coffee or in for drinks or in for dinner, I, I almost never say no. I'm receptive to generosity and I just put myself out there and I've discovered that that if you want people's stories, you make yourself available to them and they will, in fact, tell you their stories.
0: Harris's attitude toward travel and how to find one's place in the world directly influenced my own. Over the years that followed, after reading that first book, I went on to read his other titles that include Mississippi Solo, about his adventures paddling a canoe down the Mississippi River from Lake Itasca, Minnesota, all the way to the Gulf of Mexico, and Native Stranger that details a trip he made through the continent of Africa. But it was an article that he wrote for Outside Magazine in 1997 on the disparities among people of color as active participants in outdoor recreation that really got my attention. It was through the work of Eddie Harris that I first began to explore the divisions of diversity, equity, and inclusion that I now call the adventure gap. Now, more than 20 years later, I have a wonderful opportunity to learn from one of my favorite literary heroes. I'm James Edward Mills, and you're listening to The Joy Trip Project. In 2018, I had the great pleasure of hosting a visit with Eddie Harris at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. As adjunct faculty at the Nelson Institute for Environmental Studies, it was my honor to speak with him as a guest interviewer on the Edge Effects podcast. Among the many questions I had for Harris was,
1: in your travels, are you actively looking for racism? I'm not sure that's what I was looking for. I don't know what I was looking for. Partly it was a roots quest. I had just finished the trip and the book about my travels in Africa. And when a black person goes to Africa, the first question on returning is, did you find your roots there? Did you go looking for your roots? And the answer was no, I wasn't looking for them, nor did I find them had I been looking for them. But because of the question, I went looking for my roots in the South, where they are, in Virginia, in a courthouse in Goochland County, Virginia, I found the manumission papers of my great-great-great-grandfather. So, if I was looking for anything, it was a connection to the South. What I come out with, however much anger I was looking for, however much racism I was looking for, what I came away from the South with was a sense of reconciliation. It was not the South that was in my imagination. When I was a young kid, we would my, my father had a sister who lived in Florida, and we would travel in a car to go visit her. And because of the stories that I knew and what I'd heard and what I'd seen on the newspapers and on the, on the radio and on TV, especially in the late 60s when things were really heating up in the, in the South, I was almost fearful on the way to Florida and somehow detaching Florida from the rest of the South, thinking, ooh, once we get to Florida, things will be cool. And I just wanted to race across Alabama and Mississippi as fast as possible, going and coming. So in my mind, in my imagination, was the dark dread of Alabama and Mississippi as I'm taking this motorcycle trip around the South. So I might have been looking for that and did not find it. All I found was generosity, kindness, people inviting me home, people giving me the keys to their house. There one fellow in somewhere in, in, I think, Wilmington, North Carolina. I don't know where I met this guy, at, a, at a, some sort of a boat shop where he was working. I don't know what I was doing in a boat shop. But we had a conversation. He gives me the keys to his house and says, look, there's beer in the fridge. We will be home. I and my my partner will be home. My roommate will be home in a little while. Go plant yourself in the house. There's a hammock on the porch. Pick up the guitar and have a good time until we get back. And that's the kind of thing that I ran across all the time. I only had one racist event in a gasoline station. Some guy, I was getting gas from my bike and this guy was honking his horn behind me and he gets out of his car and he was sort of a menacing fella and I just verbally put him in his place. One of the things that I
0: also learn about your work... One of your very first projects was to um, paddle a canoe from Lake Itasca, Minnesota, all the way to the Gulf of Mexico, traveling along the Mississippi River. And that was the subject of a book called Mississippi Solo. Now, this is back in 1985, and and I think it might be safe to say this is the beginning of your career. What can you tell me about that trip and why it is that you
1: decided to to go there? Well, it's not the beginning of my publishing career but not the beginning of my writing career. When I, when, once I graduated from college and had my first real job experience, which I hated, I began writing immediately after that job, after I quit that job. Between my quitting that job, starting to write, and the publishing of Mississippi Solo, there are eight years of failure. The journey, well, eight years of failure between quitting that job and taking the journey That journey was inspired by a sense of failure. I needed to do something that was gonna spark my life or kill me and put me on the right track. It was not to write a book about it. I was taking this journey to discover who I, if I had the fortitude to continue writing and who this person was or is who was trying to be a writer. Put me in a canoe in an unfamiliar circumstance and let's find out What's gonna happen to this guy? And who is he? And that's what the genesis of the trip was. It was not a literary expedition. It was just, I'm gonna get in this canoe and have fun for as long as I can stand it on the way down this river.
0: And you made the entire trip. Is there anything in particular that you learned about yourself or about America that was profound enough to write a book about? About
1: America and about myself. The trip is really spiritual. The book is a spiritual book. It's a book about the internal journey as much as a physical external journey. And what I discovered about myself is that I can do anything. I figured if I can canoe this Mississippi River having no canoeing experience beforehand, I can do anything, which means I can wait out however long it takes to get this A book, my first book, my second book, A career started. What I learned about America is not only is it physically beautiful, which I already knew having traveled all over the place since the time I was 16 years old, it's a, it's a country full of people who, especially river people, who are there to help you. It makes me think of the movie Shane, where some guy's barn burns down and all of the neighbors say, well, we'll help you build your barn. And that's my, that's my perception of, of, of what America really is when you get beyond the layers of politics and the, the layers of race. You put people one-on-one together. Most of the time, if not all the t- almost all the time, they are really generous people.
0: Now, in 1997, shortly after you had taken this trip and published the book, you published an article in Outside Magazine that kind of lamented the lack of visible participation of people of color when it comes to outdoor recreation, what we describe as the great outdoors. Uh, Tell me a little bit about that particular story and what were your observations at that time?
1: Well, part of it is... It was, It's trying to answer the question why. Why don't we see black people climbing mountains, skiing, paddling Mississippi rivers and the Colorado and anything else? Why are we not seeing black people enjoying the natural world? And the short answer is we don't see them because the numbers just aren't there. But I don't know for sure if percentage-wise we're not there. So if you see 10 people skiing on the slopes of Vail. And nine of them are white. And one is black. Proportionally, that represents the, comp- the, the the population of the country. But you only see the one guy and you think, why? Why aren't there any black people out here skiing? So it's a, it's a trick question. Why aren't black people doing these things? But black people probably are doing these things. It's just that we don't notice them doing it. My aim in this article, but also in some of the other writings that I've done, is to encourage black people and people of color in general to do stuff. But also to encourage, and part of the article which was excised, was to encourage companies to advertise to black people. Let's put black people in some of these adverts so that we can see that the companies are pitching to them. Because the more you don't pitch to them, the more black people think, well, it's not for me. And the more you do, I mean, like commercials now in 2018, there are black people doing everything. There are Asians doing everything. There are Hispanics doing everything and there are mixed couples. The, the, the gamut of American society is in television commercials. If we had that same sort of representation, I think, in print ads for outdoor activities, I think the population would get the notion that, ah, we, people of color, can do that stuff too. And they would. Eddie, one of the things that
0: I really want to kind of delve into is, um, you know, an understanding of what representation means. You know, why is it that we need to see visual representations of a broad cross-section of the American public in order to fully manifest what we believe is the importance of environmental conservation and outdoor recreation?
1: Part of it, I think, is what if the more we see people represented in any given activity, the more other people are going to want to join in. It's a magnet. Representation is a magnet. Representation in print adverts and in a newspaper or in television ads is the same sort of thing. People get the idea that we can do this. And if you don't see black people driving a Toyota, black people may not feel that they should be driving Toyotas. The more Toyota pitches to them, the more people will say, "Ah, that's my car. I'm going to get in that car," and that's. So I think that sort of representation acts as a can act as a magnet. And we need more people of color involved in environmental issues because it's our environment too. And we don't want the conversations dictated by other people. Now, your second book was Native
0: Stranger and um that was an account of your experiences as an and and a black American. Yep. Not as we are popularly referring to African-Americans. You are a black American who went to Africa. Tell me about your experiences there and the revelations that you experienced on the continent.
1: Well, there are two major takeaways from that trip. And one is that Africa and Africans are fantastic. It's a hard journey. Don't get me wrong on that. It's a difficult journey, a year basically overland from Tunisia down to Cape Town South Africa and man it's hard it's a poor it's a poor continent i lost something like 40 pounds in the course of that year and yet the generosity that i encountered in africa was astounding especially given the fact that it's so poor and the people it seems not just in africa but in latin america as well the people who seem to have the least are often the most generous with the little they have. There were times when I'd be sleeping on some guy's hut floor and he would give me his little hut floor bed and he and his wife would sleep on a on the on the cold ground surface. On the hard ground surface rather not so cold. <laughs> that sort of generosity is amazing to see, especially when you realize that coming back to America, this place that has so much is a lot less generous materially with that so much that we have and the second takeaway was I'm not African as dark as my skin is as curly as my hair was because I don't have any anymore I am not of this place I'm an American I was born here my ancestors are here my ancestors are here as far back as 1795 before this country or at the same time as the founding of this country why should I look someplace else in looking someplace else, why look only at my African heritage because my skin is black, as opposed to what other whatever other mixtures might be inside my genetic material. So to call me an African-American is a little bit a misnomer because I'm not African any more than I am Welsh, which is part of this heritage and part of the things that I discovered on that first trip to this in the deep south in Gooseland County, Mississa- um, Virginia. So I don't appreciate that label as much as some other people do. I am black. I do not mind being called black because it is it's just an attribute as much as being bald or gray or bearded or tall or anything else. So call me a tall American, call me a bald American, call me a black American, but underlying it all is I'm just an American. From your
0: experiences in Africa, you came back to America. Do you have since... Left, though, you now live um, in a small village outside of Paris called Pronsac.
1: Yes, indeed. Quite by accident, I might
0: add. Uh, So (laughs) so I think it's safe to describe you as an expatriate. How did you
1: find yourself? I don't consider myself an expatriate. I consider myself an immigrant. So all of this conversation that we're having in the media these days about this migrant wave that's coming to America, I am part of a migrant wave that left America and is now Installed in another country
0: and so your experiences then as an Immigrant rather than an expatriate. I think really clearly defines your role outside of the United States. Tell me a little bit more about that
1: Well, let me first say that I consider myself an immigrant because I have no intention of coming back to live in the US And I have nothing against the US. I didn't leave the US. I was attracted to France It's a completely different thing but now that I'm in France and I've been there for so long, it just feels like home. It's where I'm going to be. And I st- come back periodically to the U.S. I, I, again, I have nothing against the country. I think it's fantastic. That my family's here. My friends are here. And in a certain way, I love America in a way that I don't love any other place. But France is home, and that's where I intend to stay.
0: Now, you mentioned your next book, and it chronicles your second trip down the mississippi river and it is the subject of a feature documentary film that we screen here in madison called river to the heart now basically it's a very similar trip that you did in 1985 what happened or what's different about that experience relative to the experience he had 30 years ago
1: apart from the fact that i'm 30 years older not much it's still a, a guy with very little canoeing experience in a canoe paddling down the mississippi river Except that this time he's traveling with a camera crew, and there's always, not always, but very often somebody around me filming what I'm doing and the people that I'm talking to, but not always. Because I'm older, it's it's a little bit harder than it was the first time. Because I'm older, I've got a little bit more experience, and I know what to look out for. I know this river now. Even though the river is a changing, living thing, it's still the Mississippi River, and I've got a good notion of what it's going to do while I'm on it. But broadly speaking, the river and the people that you run across are the same, not the same people, but the same, the same feelings that you have, the same emotions that you ran across 30 years, that I ran across 30 years ago. And that same generosity that I encountered 30 years ago, I find this time as well and not only when the camera crew is available. And in fact, more often when the camera crew is not available, the encounters that I had were really special, very genuine and very, very generous.
0: So relative to your previous experience, the circumstances, the people that you encountered were demonstrably the same (laughs) And, and not appreciably different. But I'm curious to know um, if the presence of cameras and the deliberate storytelling had an impact on, on your relationships with people. And what were the relationships like or how did they differ when the cameras weren't rolling?
1: Well, of course, the, the, the presence of a camera is going to change. Every, every encounter you have is different when there's a camera pointed at you. But I can't say how different it would be if the cameras weren't there, given a, 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 the same encounter, because those, you know, there's no, no way to be in two places at the same time or have the same encounter twice. So the conversations, the encounters that I had on camera are just conversations for the purpose of telling the story, but there were many, many times when the cameras were not there when I'm just paddling my canoe and running across people and having a different encounter. And that, in fact, is what the second book is about. It's trying to chronicle what happens when the camera crew's not around. And that similar generosity that falls upon me everywhere I go, how do I tell that story when the cameras are telling a different story? And I think that story, in some ways, is more important than the story that's told on camera because the story that's told on camera is about the river, it's about the environment, it's about society. Whereas the story that's told in the book becomes much more racial. It talks about the generosity of people vis-a-vis this black person and how wonderful it is to be out and exposed and to be joyfully reconfirmed in the notion that people are, at heart, really good. It's, I, don't, I don't want to sound Pollyanna-ish, but it's a Pollyanna-ish kind of story because the more you get out... The more you experience other people in these kinds of one-on-one encounters, the more you will discover the same things that I do, which is, wow, I sh- this is what I should be doing all the time. And I do. And there is a line in this in this new book where I'd say I'm changing the world a smile at a time, a handshake at a time, a pat on the back at a time. And I think that's what we're all intended to do. Go out and smile, go out and shake somebody's hand, go out and pat some guy on the back and tell him. What a nice day he should be having, and what a nice day you're having, and how nice he looks in that red tie. Well,
0: now you spent quite a bit of time on the river—two thousand five hundred and fifty-two miles, almost, not quite the entire length. He didn't actually make it all the way to the ocean. But I'm curious to know: were there any specific um, ecological or environmental? circumstances in the river that were particularly noticeable to you, or was there anything about your, your travels that, from an environmental standpoint, was particularly
1: noteworthy for you? Sure. A couple of things come straight to mind, which is the river seems a lot cleaner than it did 30 years ago, which is really positive. People have been made aware by environment environmental groups and conservation groups that the river is important and we need this resource. And there have been great efforts made to clean up the river. It's still, in many places, still dicey. But in a lot of places, it's really much cleaner than it was 30 years ago. And, in fact, the American pelican, which is my, the thing I grab most often and most readily, the American pelican is back on the, on the river. I didn't see a single pelican in 1985. In 2014, man, they're all over the place. And they are such a beauty to watch. And the other, and I had conversations with people who are studying muscles and muscle migration—not muscle migration so much as muscle transplantation and invasion of muscle species. So we have, on the surface, under the surface, lots of problems that still need to be addressed. But the biggest problem that I encountered was the Asian carp, the Asian carp invasion an invasive species that are just taking over the river system. And if we're not careful and can't find a way to eradicate these things, it's going to be a problem long term for the for the ecosystem. These fish are a danger to the ecosystem, but also to anybody in a boat. These things fly out of the water like crazy. They can jump like six feet in the air. And if you're in your little canoe, they can knock you in the head, knock you into the water man it's it is a serious problem, so the things that we see on the positive side versus the things that we hardly see on the negative side, maybe they counterbalance each other. but it is clearly a, an environmental issue writ large. So I would imagine that
0: you've got big plans for the future. What happens next where do you, Where do you go from here?
1: Well Because I am who I am and I travel a lot, the next book will likely be a traveling thing. Because I'm living in France and spending a lot of time lately in Eastern or Central Europe, I'm thinking the next book is going to talk about the racial mixing that's happening now and historically in Central Europe. We get this notion often that France is France and France has always been France or that Poland is Poland has always been Poland even though Poland was never Poland until Poland was reconstituted as Poland. Or the Czechs are Czech and the Slovaks are Slovaks and the Romanians are Romanian. I'm gonna have a look at who are these people and how how do they coexist with other tribes basically inside Romania and what that historical context is and how it's going to look in the future as these migrants from Syria, for example, are piling into places like or trying to pile into places like Greece and Hungary, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so looking at race from a completely different context, which has very little to do with black and white, but white and white or off white and white, but something about who these people are and how do they coexist, if they if they do.
0: Well, that's a story that I really look forward to reading. Eddie Harris, thank you so much for being with us today.
1: It's a great pleasure. Thanks James. man.
2: Hey, hey, hey. Hey,
0: 30 years of reading the work of Eddie Harris as a fan, I now count him among my friends. It's that same spirit of humility and vulnerability that makes him such an endearing person and a very compelling writer. You can find more of his work online at eddieharris.com. For The Joy Project, this is James Edward Mills.
2: I know I belong. I belong. I'm gonna see my heart beating with the freedom of the love of the home that I know is where I'm from. Hey.
0: Thanks again to my colleagues at the University of Wisconsin Department of History podcast, Edge Effects. New music this week by Ilya Chunov and Brick Fields, courtesy of Artlist. The Joytrip Project is made possible thanks to the support of American Rivers, the National Forest Foundation, and Patagonia. You can learn more about their incredible work in protection of our public land and natural resources on my website at joytripproject.com. If you enjoyed this episode, leave a note in the comments, or better still, write a review in our feed in iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and now Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcast. If you have questions or comments or criticisms, send me a note via email at info at For now, go be joyful, and until next time, take care.
2: now I'm headed up I'm gonna find myself home